Welcome to the Knowing Podcast. We're here to talk about healing, about insight, about cultivating and living from our own internal wisdom, and about the intention to live beautifully and compassionately as a human being during these times. We're really happy you're here. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Knowing. Uh, we are going to dive right in because my husband's taking the kids out of the house for a limited amount of time. And I can, um, sometimes I have a really hard time, to be completely honest, sitting down and talking to myself in a room because I'm a very dialogue, conversation-based person. And I really miss having someone, you know, kind of feeding back to me whether or not I'm making sense. Also, because I think I have a tendency to ramble. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I think I might. And so it's a little bit hard for me sometimes to sit down and record these because I'm so used to conversation. So here I am trying to do this as quickly and efficiently as possible, but also make it uh, meaningful for anyone who happens to be listening to it. So, but we're going to dive right in. We're exploring, uh, as I mentioned in the last episode, um, a continuation of the the tools, the support system, the allies, the the practices and the philosophy that I feel are fundamental to being able, being able to navigate a soul initiation in a powerful way. And I use that term to navigate it very uh, intentionally in the sense that these tools, and I think I mentioned this last time, but if I didn't, just, you know, this is a really important point that on the initiatory journey, all the tools that you learn or receive are not used, not meant to be used in, I think, the way we typically in, in modern society understand, quote unquote, medicine, um, in that I think typically we think when we are having, say, a painful experience, say we have a, a pain in our knee, um, the medicine that we would take is something that would mitigate or reduce the the pain in our knee, and that is what it's it's supposed to do, right? Is is remove the the symptoms or the suffering that's there. The tools that we learn along our soul journey and, and initiation into the soul self are not to mitigate pain; they are to help us understand our suffering and to be able to utilize our suffering. And quite honestly, even the suffering of other beings to wake us up, to bring us into full consciousness and awareness within our individual experience as human beings, um, but also to open our hearts, to be able to connect more fully with the world around us, to be able to be more present with all beings um, in, in greater and greater, to greater and greater degrees. And and so it's it's not, it's a really hard sell, I recognize, because you can't get rid of the suffering, the the pain and and discomfort, you know, immense discomfort that one feels on this journey. And and so please when you're when you're engaging with these practices know that we don't use them to in that symptomatic management kind of way that we have been indoctrinated into and culturated into. We use them so that we can stay present to the pain that is. And I, I honestly, I had kind of a hard time actually sitting down and trying to lay out all of these sessions um, initially when I was planning this as a video course to and figuring out, you know, how do you offer the most 
uh, important or kind of essential practices first and, and which ones are those and, and how do you offer them in a meaningful way so that you as a listener and as a practitioner can engage with them in a meaningful way. Um, and I kind of went back and forth on on which practices to offer first. But I, I landed on working with compassion today Um I think because I feel that it it has been the most foundational and most pivotal practice that I've engaged with along my path. And I think that it, I suppose I want to offer it here right away because I feel like it's the thing that our world needs more than anything right now. Um, at a time of hyperpolarization and hyper-righteousness and hyper um, tribalism, quite frankly, you know, separation of people and, and, and immense judgment for other groups of people and a really bizarre and kind of terrifying ease that, with which we are all, I think, writing other people off based on their ideological alignments or their perspectives or their choices in life. And and I, I really do think that, that compassion um, will define the initiated human species and compassion is, is a, it's a very difficult, um, practice in that it's, well, we'll get into this in detail and, and really break it apart, but it really does require a lot of personal attention and spiritual attention and spiritual belief in order to engage with it in a meaningful way, I think. Um, uh, and it also, it requires us to look at ourselves um, and and really reflect on how we're showing up in the world. And we have, I think, especially since you know probably around two thousand and nine. I think they can. There's a lot of data suggesting that something really profound shifted in our psyches and the way that we relate to each other around the time that we all started really using smartphones um, and and engaging with social media in an intensive way. We we started. I think focusing so intensely on other people, but also on a, a very narcissistic kind of expectation of the world treating us the way that we want to be treated, which is understandable. But it, what that prevents actually is is a lot of self-reflection of us looking at how we are showing up, not how the world is showing up for us, but how we are actually offering um, presence or compassion to the world. And it's kind of fallen out of um, trend, if I may, you know, in terms of of what we are doing in the world right now to look at oneself. And I think this is a really tragic uh, shift, quite honestly, and, and movement away from, I think, the practice that actually liberates us the most, which is is looking at our own uh, darkness and the stuff that we don't really want to see in ourselves and not perpetually uh, projecting that onto the world and then blaming the world for for not satisfying us. So again, I know this sounds a bit vague. We're going to get into this um, uh, extensively here in a moment. So so um, maybe as a, a preface, uh, there's a wonderful teacher, you may have encountered her already, Sandra Ingerman. Um, she's a, a brilliant shamanic practitioner and writer and teacher. And she has beautifully articulated that within the shamanic tradition, there are three tools that are really, they're essential for navigating the path to power, the path to soul, uh, in order to be able to bring our minds out of egoic 
structures and patterns when they get activated. And these are all these structures and patterns that our brain has to try to give us a sense of control, try to, you know, manage our circumstances or to try to get away from things that evoke fear and uncertainty in us. And these patterns are, as I think I mentioned in the last episode, they are necessary. They are a requirement of our early life in order for us to figure out how to navigate life. Um, but they keep us uh, really locked into reactionary experiences in our individual processes. And we need to move away from them. We need to not be letting our mind function from the egoic perspective all the time. And so these tools are actually ways of thinking when ways of engaging with life really that can bring us out of an egoic process and right into connection with the soul self um, instantly if we remember how to practice them and, and to practice them when we have been activated. And she she says these practices are, are compassion, blessing, and gratitude. And I've mentioned these on the podcast before. I would offer that I, I think the other tool that we have is basic mindfulness, basic presence, as we explored in the last episode. If we can actually bring our mind to just full awareness of what is in this moment, we have the ability to coming back into a, a potential connection with soul. Um, so we're not going to explore that any that tool anymore. And I'm actually going to reserve gratitude as an exploration for a future episode because it, it deserves its own. And today what we're going to do is sort of sandwich together um, compassion and blessing and break them down, look at how they work in our world, and then um, look at a practice. And you'll, as, as with last time, receive or you'll see an audio track for this week with a, a dedicated practice um, that encapsulates both compassionate and blessing practice, I think, in a very beautiful way. So, so um, what is compassion and, and how do we understand this, right? I, I think that this compassion and then it's sort of... Um, shared or or similar uh, word or state empathy and my words are not going to be great today I apologize guys I'm a bit rambly I had the shittiest sleep last night I don't know what's going on but um, <laughs> I hope I can make sense for you here um, compassion and empathy are often used interchangeably. I think you can recognize this in our world. We talk about empathy all the time. Empathy is a very good thing. Um, I would agree it is a very good thing. It is also a potentially very bad or destructive thing. And I'll explain in a minute why. Um, but I, I think we use the words compassion and empathy without really thinking about the difference between the two. And so we're going to break this down. Um, we're going to explore you know, when empathy is appropriate and beneficial and when it is not, when compassion is appropriate and available. And, and this is a very important point, I think, is, is understanding that compassion is only really available to us when we are ready to engage with it as a conscious experience. It's not available to us when we're children, and I'll explain why. But um, I think that maybe to pull back a little bit, societally, we have been existing in this, these so-called patriarchal structures, right, of the, in the Western world, um, certainly that emerged in, in uh, Europe, and then were kind of spread all throughout the world through colonization. The, the framework of the patriarchal world is, it's a very um, top-down controlled system 
where there is a lot of hierarchy, a lot of sense of, you know, above and below in terms of people who have power, who don't have power, in terms of who um, is exercising control in the world. There is the obvious emphasis, you know, through the etymology of the word on on the, the father figures, on the masculine. Um, I think that our world, as I've mentioned before, has been largely dominated by the mechanisms of the left hemisphere, which is really, you could affiliate that with the, the masculine. I mean, the left hemisphere is uh, concerned with manipulating the world, with making the world be what it wants it to be, basically. And, and this is what the patriarchal system, I think, is is really uh, built upon, is, is an almost an arrogant and inflated sense of our ability and right to manipulate the world and absent of um, the feminine, which is what emerges from the right hemisphere, this quality of um, humility and receptivity and connection to the system in which we live and ability to uh, perceive the gestalt, the, the, the whole picture of existence, right? The left hemisphere does, does not do that very well. And I, I think societally, uh, recently, we are seeing a very profound and understandable, but kind of scary, wild pendulum swing from the functioning of the the left hemisphere um, kind of unchecked, right, which which is very emotionally suppressive and oppressive. Uh, the left hemisphere really doesn't like or know actually have the capacity to deal with emotions. The only emotion it really likes is is anger. Um, and so, you know, the the patriarchal regime that we have all been existing in in the West um, has been emotionally damaging and, and emotionally suffocating for most people. And in response to this, you know, we've gone wildly over to the other side of the kind of emotional uh, continuum where we are letting ourselves become very emotionally uh, informed. Form, uh, we, we are using emotional reasoning, quite frankly, where we are letting our emotions be seen as the, the ultimate source of wisdom. And I mean, in emotional reasoning, basically, the, the perspective we take is I feel this, therefore, it must be true, which is understandable because you know we've been living with this system that is quite oppressive to the emotional state. And so we want to liberate the emotions. But the emotions, um, the you know, intuitive feminine part of us still needs the masculine, which you could see as the rational part of us, you know, the controlling and and manipulating part of our our mental capacities. Um, we don't want to completely walk away from the masculine, and and we need a sense of rational relationship with our emotional state in order to be um, healthy, happy, reasonable human beings. Right? Reason is really the the merging of rationality and intuition. And Ian McGilchrist, because I'll just talk about him forever, but he does such a beautiful way, um, job of articulating this. But we're going really, really far to the emotional side right now. And I am I'm certain we're going to settle out, but this reactionary phase in the pendulum shift has put us into what I would call hyper-empathy. And Empathy, and, and maybe we'll start here in, in terms of exploring these as, as ideas and, and looking at the definitions of them, right? Empathy is 
Wonderful. Empathy is is really, really important. And I think we can all recognize that, you know, having empathy, the ability to understand and and to share in the feelings of other people, um, to understand the state of someone outside of ourselves to the best of our abilities, to empathically attune to them is very important. Um, it is absolutely necessary, I think, within close relationships, within our family systems, uh, with local small communities, as has been the human experience for, you know, a very long time, 250,000 to two and a half million years. We've been living in very small communities where empathy has been a primary way of establishing and maintaining bonds within our close community, right? Empathy um, is is what really allows us to feel connected to uh, the the people closest to us. But this is a really amazing book. I can't remember if I've referenced this on the podcast before by a guy named Paul Bloom. I think he's a professor in uh, University of Toronto or something. But it's the book is called Against Empathy. And, and it's a, actually a fairly short and easy to access book. The primary thesis of the book is pretty direct, which is that Empathy as, a, as a, a tool, as an emotional practice, has both great beauty and, and necessity in it, but also immense limitations and is something that needs to, in, in Bloom's perspective, be upgraded, basically, for in order for us to be able to function as a global society with diverse people and, and you know, huge multicultural experiences that... Empathy as a, a primary mechanism of creating close relationships with people who are similar to us, or at least who we can understand, has, again, huge limitations. You know, he he cites this research that's been done that shows that, you know, we can and we will feel empathy only for those that we feel aligned with, right? Or or those that we have deemed worthy of, of caring. Um, and so, you know, they, they've looked at people... Um, in research, offering empathy to someone, and then they, the researchers will tell the subject that the person who's in who's suffering actually likes a baseball team that's different than theirs, the the one that they're affiliated with, and the person's ability to empathically attune to that person stops. They they no longer can consider the emotional experience of that other person because they have othered them. And this is this is a biological impulse in all of us. Um, it's a way that we create safety, certainly when we are children, right, is, is we have the people that we are connected to, and then there's the people that we're not connected to. And that's, it's normal, and it's not actually a, a bad phenomenon. It's the way that the child's brain works. The child's brain really does not have the capacity for doing, you know, more than that, for, for going into, you know, a kind of global compassion where it can feel connected to all things and all people, right? And that's not a failing of the child. What's happening, I think, is a failing of our adult minds where we are still using empathy um, extensively in our uh, huge, you know, global relationships and connections. And it's actually driving tribalism and driving polarization and driving and, and enhancing our sense of of othering where there are the people that we are with and the people that we are against. And this is emerging. I think you can see it all throughout our, our media, you know, as as people saying there are good people there. There are bad people there, you know, there's, there's the people that are with us and there's these people and there's such hard lines being drawn that, um, really, 
I think should alarm all of us in terms of of the the danger to us as a collective human species that othering creates uh, conflict always it creates uh, war it creates separation and and we're we're doing this I think we're enhancing this through the way that we are relating to uh, or overusing empathy quite frankly so um, empathy you know, is, is actually quite easy for our brains as, as much as there's been a lot of talk, I think, especially in the last like 20 years, really looking at emotional intelligence and, and emphasizing the importance of empathy and, and thinking about how empathic we are. And I think women tend to be um, more empathic um, by nature. And, and maybe that relates to, you know, the, the structural setup of our brains and that, you know, we have generally quite a bit larger corpus callosums, that strip of, of tissue running through the center of your brain. And that allows for, you know, cross hemispheric communication between the emotional intuitive part on your right hemisphere and your more rational part on in the left hemisphere. Men have smaller corpus callosums. So I think it's much easier for them to go into hyper rationality and separate from their emotional and intuitive selves. Um, but I think as as a female, you know, we can become really over empathetic and where we're taking on the emotions, the experience and the energy of other people all the time. And I mean, empathy exhaustion is a real thing. And this happens because we are we are taking on this these experiences and and feeling them as if we were in them. And it actually becomes incapacitating. I, empathy, again, in in small groups is good because, you know, we can understand that person. Maybe we can help them process what's going on, right? And it's it's not asking this, this massive um, experience and, and process of us, which is that we are able to hold the pain and the suffering of the entire world with an empathic attunement um, as the the sort of baseline process, like that's not, that's not good for us. And I think it's destroying, I think it's really destroying females all over the place. Um, and, but I, I think it's also really bad for men. I think it's bad for all of us to be overusing empathy. Empathy is, uh, again, it's, it's easy for our brains. It's quite automatic. It really actually enhances bias. Um, it, it doesn't, encourage us to go into more complex, um, integrated understandings of emotions and people's processes. Because again, it's like, here's this person suffering, I can relate to them, therefore I can relate to their suffering. Here's this person suffering, I can't relate to them, I, I will not relate to their suffering. Basically, they are a bad person and I'm going to write them off. And again, I think this is so dangerous and something that we really need to be looking at as a collective um, if we're going to transcend and, and move through this, this collective initiation process, right? And, and really grow up. And I say that without any judgment and any blame that I don't think that we have systems in place for teaching us how to be empathic because of the history of our patriarchal culture, you know, but also how to be compassionate. And, and compassion builds upon empathy. Okay. And maybe we'll go into the difference here. Um, compassion is, you know, when you, when you look up the definition of it, it says that it's, it's feeling the suffering of someone else, but then wanting to help. And I agree with this definition, but I also think that empathy can be that, you know, that, and, and I think it can be really misguided how we move into attempting to help when someone is suffering, right? Where, you know, simple example, 
you have a friend come to you and they say, well, my partner's being a jerk and I don't, you know, they're, they're, they've hurt me. And, and so you empathically attune because they're a close friend and you feel their suffering. And if you, you try to help from an empathic standpoint, your instinct is, I want to get this person away from their suffering. I want to help them reduce the suffering that they're experiencing. And and what it might sound like in that circumstance is you may turn around to them and say, yeah, he's a total jerk and you deserve better, right? Which gives this very short-term alleviation of the suffering that the person is having, right? Because they can think, yeah, you know, he's just a jerk and and I need to get away from him. But long-term, the person has not actually figured out how to navigate the emotional experience that they're having in any meaningful way. Um, they have not learned to look at their own involvement in the situation. And there's always some involvement that we can look at as a person, as an individual in each experience we have in our lives. But, the, you know, it, it makes the, the, the friend feel really good because it's like, oh, look, I, I help them get away from that suffering. But it actually creates, you know, a, a long term pattern that's not actually beneficial. It's enabling, right, where the person is, is not, they're not figuring out how to respond more consciously uh, in that in that experience that they're having where compassion and empathy differ i would argue is that i don't feel and this is my personal experience that when you are in a compassionate state of mind i i'm i don't think we're actually trying to feel what the other person is feeling and to be completely frank i think that um, claiming that we ever can do that, that we can feel what someone else is feeling is quite, is pretty arrogant in, in my perspective, right? I, I mean, I joke with my friends that like, I, I, I'm not very good at empathy. I think I am. I think I, I can feel for other people. I can get into someone else's experience. I don't like doing it. It's destabilizing and, and really jarring. But what is actually happening, I think, when I'm sitting with someone and, and attuning to their emotional experience is I'm being a receptive container for whatever it is that they are experiencing without actually involving myself in their experience. I think empathy can be very um, selfish. And I say that carefully. And, and I know this goes against, you know, some contemporary perspectives and, and narratives around emotional intelligence. I think empathy is really, it's, it's very self-important. Um, and, and I think misguides us because we don't know what someone else is feeling. I don't think that that's actually possible. And we might, um, we're going to, you know, respond to their distress the way that we would respond to our distress, which, you know, if we're still following our biological drive to avoid suffering and, and move towards pleasure, we're going to do something that is probably going to enable them, right? I hope this makes sense because I think if you reflect on, you know, maybe your empathic attunement in your life when you encounter someone suffering and look at that instinct of like, okay, well, I want to help with their suffering, right? It is there when we're empathically attuned. It's just that I think our version of helping the suffering is very different than compassion practice, okay? Um, compassion, especially, I suppose I would, I would use the phrase global compassion or um, uh, sentient compassion. So this is a, a very Buddhist perspective on having compassion for all beings. We're aspiring to being able to be present to the suffering of all beings, all sentient beings. Okay? 
Um, this is a state that where we are we are aspiring to be willing to help every single being in the world, no matter their religious, ideological, or you know whatever uh, alignment in that particular moment. This is this. It's a core goal uh, within my lineage, and and I think I hope you can see this as as a core goal for the human species because I don't have a clue how we're supposed to live on this planet as a collective without this. Um, is to be able to want to help everybody, <laughs> not just the people that we feel automatic and easy empathy for, but everyone. And, and this is a really big ask, right? Because we have to then seek compassion and emotional connection with people and beings that we don't understand, um, or who are doing things that we completely don't agree with. And, and this is, you know, a very, maybe it's subtle, but I think it's, it's also profound difference between empathy and compassion. Um, because, in compassion, true compassion, as I understand it and practice it, we are not actually feeling with the other person. It is, again, a more, it's it's a merged um, experience of rational, very principled thinking in terms of how we think about the behaviors or experience of another person. Um, along with, you know, there is the emotional and feeling sense there, this, this open heartedness, you know, what we call bodhicitta, um, in Buddhism, which is this, this warmth towards all beings, right? Those two things are working together in compassion. And this leads us to recognize too, that the, the instinct then, or the, the other component of compassion, which is the instinct to want to help, to want to step in and, and do something to alleviate or, or help with the suffering of the other person, it will make us remain aware that what we think of as being helpful, you know, the, again, that, that action or the, the word or whatever we might do to remove the suffering or to minimize the suffering that that person is happen, having in that moment is not actually what we might do through compassion practice. Compassion practice um, might actually be that we help the person go deeper into the suffering so that they can clean that wound and and actually experience those those unprocessed unintegrated uh, emotional stuff happening for them uh, in a meaningful way compassion doesn't look like enabling ever it doesn't look like helping the person blame someone for their circumstances but it actually is about helping the person meet what is more fully and and this is very it's very, very different, you know, in, in terms of the uh, attunement that we have with other people, in terms of how we converse, um, and in terms of how we, I think, think of of behavior, right? I think in, in Buddhism, there's this concept, and, and Chagyan Trumpa would talk about it all the time, that he called idiot compassion, which I would call empathy and and niceness, right? We we want to be nice a lot of the time, and that's very understandable. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. We don't want to make them feel uncomfortable, right? And so we do things to um, manage the interactions with other people and, and so that they think that we're a nice person and, and we protect their emotions. 
but in the long term, this is, again, very, very bad for people because they are never learning how to actually work with their emotions and integrate them effectively. They are expecting that the world is going to be nice to them all the time and then probably not really welcoming real feedback when it actually happens. Compassion uh, through the Buddhist lens is very ruthless sometimes. You know, they have these... these um, Dakinis, these female sort of godlike mythological creatures within the Buddhist tradition who come along and just, you know, sideswipe you basically when you're being an idiot and not taking care of things in your life. And they are seen as highly compassionate beings. They're like, you know, coming along and smacking you in the face and saying, wake up, pay attention to your life, right? And giving you an honest feedback, a piece of honest feedback that can transform the way that you operate. And that that difference, you know, I know this is, it's intense to consider that, you know, being nice actually is, is not compassion and, and can actually be very, very damaging and detrimental. Whereas calling someone out on their behavior, as long as we have a compassionate, non-judgmental, energetic um, state that we are coming from, and this is what compassion practice is all about, is learning to not judge other beings to be able to see their uh, silliness or ridiculous behavior or inability to meet the circumstances of their life as inherently human and and that you are the same and that we don't judge them right but we still call them out on their behavior and that's a very it's a very different kind of tonal and energetic quality to how we engage with other people empathy is actually about us it's about us trying to maintain our sense of belonging and bonding compassion is is fearless in the sense that you know it's it's not about us it is actually about the other person and sometimes the best thing that you can do for another person is turn around and say hey you're hurting me here and i don't i will not put up with this behavior and set a, a firm boundary with them right which is really hard when we're empathizing and you know we see that other person suffering and we want to fix their suffering for them so so compassion is really a Again, a mental practice. Um, and in this practice, we practice seeing the pain beneath people's anger. We see the loneliness beneath someone's lashing out. You know, we see the the self-doubt that is beneath uh, poor work ethic. Um, and and we see these patterns in other people and we see them in ourselves and we recognize that we are all inherently human and, and predisposed to these kind of uh, behavior patterns, right? And and again, it's not about empathizing with them and then enabling that and saying, oh, I get it, so just keep doing that. It's about really cognitively understanding those patterns and then saying, and now what? What do we do with this? How do we uh, call ourselves and other people to task in a compassionate manner that, in a way that will actually help them move away from, from these patterns? So... Um, there is a, a belief, and I didn't include this in the, the first episode because it really, I mean, I, I think it weaves through compassionate practice um, in a far more meaningful way. And I don't think I needed to articulate it as like a, a ground belief of, of this process. But I'll offer it here, you know, for you to engage with, um, which is this perspective that people are basically good. And, and this it really is, you know, I, I think you can recognize, I imagine you can recognize that this is really a belief. It is not truth. You know, if, if you believe that people are 
bad and selfish and you want to take the sort of Dawkins perspective on human nature, you can and and will go out into the world and find evidence for that, that we are selfish and ridiculous and exhausting. Um, and you'll say, see, I'm right, right? I personally believe you can do the same thing with the belief that people are basically good and that all of our aberrant or nasty behavior emerges out of pain that we have not integrated and processed within ourselves. And you can go out into the world and find evidence of that. I think that as with all beliefs, you know, and as I mentioned in the last episode, how we think about things, even if it it, it cannot be found as an, an immutable truth in the world, um, changes the world that we live in. And so I believe that people are basically good because I want to live in that world um, where <laughs> the world is also generous to me because I've been a shithead a lot in my life. And, and you know, I'd, I'd like to think that I was doing those things because I had pain in me that I couldn't process yet. Now, again, though, that's not where we stop with compassion practice of just, oh, that person has pain, so let's let them off the hook and keep letting them do not particularly beneficial things for themselves or other people or for the system. Uh, we call them out and we say, okay, here, I understand, but no. I understand that you are having this pain, but I will not tolerate this behavior. And that's really what real grounded um clear compassion sounds like and, and behaves like in the world. So you can think about this. You know, I, I, I think Allison and I had dropped into this topic several times in previous episodes, and you may have thought about it then, but it really does change the way that you interact with the world and, and changes the way that you um, will also consider the possibility for your own healing. And because and, if, if we don't think that other people are basically good. We'll also reserve uh, that perspective for ourselves too and say, well, maybe there's some just nasty, flawed part in me and I, you know, I'm, I'm not good and, I, and so therefore nobody else can be good either, right? It goes both ways. But I think if you, if you feel into this, you know, what happens in your mind and in your sense of possibility in the world when you think that people are basically good, that all babies are born into this world inherently loving and wanting to be loved. And then they learned pattern, learn patterns of behavior in order to navigate the circumstances that they're in. Um, and some of those patterns might be pretty violent or nasty or, or selfish or you name it, right? But that they learned those in order to cope and survive and that it's not inherent to them. I think it, it makes a lot of, a lot of possibility in our world and in our personal process. So I would encourage you to explore that. Um, it it also opens up, I think, a huge realm where we are willing to look at our darkness, right? Where instead of looking at negative, quote unquote, negative parts of our being and just saying, oh, that's just the part of me that's nasty and I'm never going to get away from it. This opens up, again, possibility that that might just be a pattern or a trait um, and an expression of our personality that we learned to navigate pain. And there's the possibility that we could unlearn it and move away from it, right? And so it, it's a far more welcoming way of introducing um, the idea that compassion requires going into your darkness, right? It does not require you to feel what another person is feeling. That again, is very good in close relationships, but we don't want to practice that all the time and it's not available for a global world.
this idea of going into your darkness is a really big one. And it's, it's exceptionally difficult, again, in the world that we live in, because we all want to present ourselves in a certain way and be seen a certain way and have positive reflections from the world around us. And this is all very understandable. But um, Pema Chodron has this beautiful quote, you know, where she says, it is, it's only when we know our own darkness that we can be present with the darkness of, of another. Um, and that it is really what she's saying is it's a recognition of the humanity and the tendencies that we all share that really allows us to really want to help another in that compassionate way, right? And we want to help not because we're above or we see ourselves actually in a helping role, but because we know what it is to be messed up. We know what it is to be confused and and judgmental and righteous and whatnot, right? And you know, we we actually are aware of the darkness, the the potential for evil that we all have. And I'm going to break down evil as a a thing, as an energy in the world, because evil does exist. I do not believe that evil people exist in the sense that they are not inherently evil. There's evil action for sure. And we'll be looking at this a little more extensively later on. But when we when we try to present ourselves as perfect or not having these flawed human characteristics. Um, this is a primary mechanism of the ego, right? As, as we reject those parts of us that we've decided are unlovable. And all we can do then is project them onto other people in the world around us, right? And and hence, you know, what, what happens with hyper empathy and, and a lack of compassion and self-reflection is this, this bias, you know, and, and polarization and separation from people, othering from other groups of people because they're like that, but we're not like that at all. And I know I'm driving this point home, but I really hope that you can understand why this is so critical for us as a human collective right now, that if we are projecting onto other people things that we are disowning in ourselves, there is no hope for uh, unity as a collective, but there's also no hope for soul initiation because to initiate with the soul is to be welcome to the multitudes that you contain. You are a selfish person. You are a jealous person, an envious person, a righteous person, a dogmatic person. You are I, all the things. <laughs> so am I. And that, you know, we, we don't have to be um, absent of those things to be liberated from them. We actually have to be okay with them. And we have to be able to meet our humanity, not perfect ourselves, right? It, this isn't about becoming this, this version of a human being that never does something stupid or, or acts, you know, or has envious thoughts, but actually about being able to love the part of us that has those envious thoughts and love it in other people and understand this is what it is to be a messy, you know, third dimensional human being is, is we have these these quirks, right? And it's it's what makes us human. And this is a very different way, I think, of approaching um, spiritual and personal integration. Is is that we're not we're not fixing ourselves. We are not problems that need to be fixed. We are mysteries that need to be uh, engaged with and met and 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 understood, right? And when we reject something within ourselves, and again, project it onto the world around us, we're not understanding anything. We're not, we're not willing to um, go deeper into the complexity of our own individual human experience. So that is what's required in, in uh, compassion practice. 
And the essence of that, again, is that we are willing to move towards suffering, okay? We're willing to move towards darkness. We're willing to move towards shit we just don't want to pay attention to in ourselves, right? Things that, you know, we don't want to admit to in our own uh, personal experience. And this is what allows us to, paradoxically, ironically, I don't know what the right word is there. I like both of those words, so we use them. Um is that's what allows us to feel connected to everybody is not that we got all perfect, but that we fully accepted all the parts of our being and thus can see it in other people and still draw really good boundaries with them and say, no, I'm not okay with that behavior, right? I understand it because you're human and you have these tendencies just like I do, but no. And, and that's where I, I truly know a, a soul initiated adult to exist. They, they exist in that realm of understanding, but really firm boundaries on appropriate and inappropriate behavior. So I hope I've covered this as meaningfully as possible. Um, compassion is such a beautiful practice because, you know, it's like, it's the most beautiful thing, the amazing experience to learn to love a part of yourself that you had rejected, right? A part that was selfish or, or insecure or whatever it is, right? The part that we just don't want to love, right? We learn to mother and, and father these parts in ourselves and and, and it hurts when, when we first, you know, admit it, it hurts to our ego, right? It's like, oh God, I am that, you know, and, and I see it in me and oh, I don't want to. And I'm, I'm so, I've been so used to projecting and judging it in other people. I really don't want to accept it in myself. But when we can and do accept these parts of ourselves, um, we let those parts of our soul really, you know, those rejected parts of our authentic being back in and we are whole again. And then we can feel, again, connected to everything around us and, and we feel this enhanced sense of belonging. And we have to move past empathic practices and processes in order to get there. We have to look at our own stuff inside so as to create real unity with the world, not, you know, affiliate ourselves with people that we think are right and then other the other people. That is childish. And I say that, again, with no judgment, but it is childish. I mentioned before that, you know, when we're kids, when we are up until the age of about 11 or 12, the prefrontal cortex, that, that large area in the front of your brain, really is not, it's not highly integrated or innervated by appropriate nerve networks, um, you know, so that we can access the functionality of that part of our brain. And we are, we're really just pure emotion, you know, and, and in that sense, children should be taught empathy, like try to understand, you know, this is what the person is feeling and, and try to get a really complex and fulsome um, understanding of, of emotional states and how they show up in people and teach your children that. Yes, absolutely. And we all need that the empathy. You know, again, you could see it as the bedrock of compassion. It does need to be developed, but it is not the end goal. Um, once we hit about 11 or 12 and those, you know, there's this massive explosion of enzymes that prune all of the synaptic connections that our brain no longer needs. And then we go into real identity development in our adolescence, which is why we feel so batshit crazy during that time, you know, when we're trying to figure out who we are in the world, um, the prefrontal cortex starts becoming more and more available. And up until, you know, somewhere around the age of 22 or so, it's really developing and it's developing in its connections to the, the limbic system, which is our midbrain emotional system. 
and teaching us how to work with emotions and self-reflect and, and, you know, engage with the world in a potentially compassionate manner. Now, I don't think our civilization really encourages um, the practices that help the prefrontal cortex come online. And this is mindfulness-based practices, self-awareness practices, um, you know, things that take a lot of um, critical thought, uh, metacognition stuff. This is all, you know, connected to the prefrontal cortex uh, functionalities. So we can be adults who have a prefrontal cortex, and that's where compassion and again self-reflection is 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 fun happens. Um, we can have that available. We don't just we don't necessarily use it though. It, it is actually something we have to practice. We have to um, train our brain to think in this way, right? And I mean, I joke with clients all the time that, uh, you know, the most important question that you could probably ask yourself is how am I difficult to live with or how am I an asshole? Because that is the, that's, that's a liberating question on this path, not how are other people are assholes or how do I find, you know, problems out in the world, but to practice looking at the self and, and especially anytime you're judging someone else turning back towards yourself and saying, do I ever do that? The answer is always going to be yes. And when we do that, we have the potential to love that part of our soul self, you know, that part that we had deemed unlovable. We can call it back in and say, no, you, even though you are an envious twat, sometimes we all are, we're still lovable and that's, that's okay. And and so is that other person exhibiting that, that tendency. And yeah, it, it's such a beautiful process, but it's not available to us earlier on in our life. Maybe we've had someone model it for us in our life, hopefully, so that during those adolescent years, we might orient towards that. But we don't live in a compassionate world right now. Social media has done unbelievable damage to the way that our brains function, to the way that we construct reality, you know, and and I sometimes I, I said to my husband a while ago, I was like, I just wish I could go back to like 2006 and remember what it was like to live in the world where this didn't exist, right? Where we we weren't actually enhancing and encouraging narcissism. I, and again, I hope you can hear this without, I don't feel judgment for it. It just, I think we need to actually call it what it is that we have become completely self-absorbed in this world. And you know, we we are out there doing empathic things and and fighting for other people and and yelling names at groups of people on behalf of other people. It's still all about us. It's still about us, you know, feeling like we belong and we're in the right group and those are the other people over there. And and social media and and I mean, really all access to the abundance of media that we have right now has really enhanced this for us. And and I think it's very scary and it's not going to lead to the kind of world that I, I'm pretty sure we all want to live in. So, so the practice that you're going to receive this week to explore compassion, I have offered a recording and a meditation way early on in the, in the podcast on this, um, on the practice of Tonglen. I'm going to re-issue uh, it here with music that Brent has created because it's just way more beautiful. And I think hopefully we'll feel more um, meaningful embedded in this system of offerings. 
So for those of you who have not interacted with um, that previous meditation or with the idea and the, the concept of Tonglen at all, I just want to give you a little bit of backstory. Okay, um, Tonglen is a, a Tibetan Buddhist practice and is said to actually predate Tibetan Buddhism, came from the, the uh, Bon tradition, which was a shamanic tradition prior to Buddhism in Tibet. Um, and the, the word Tonglen means to send and to receive or to give and to take. And this is a, it's a compassion practice um, that is breath-based and we use it to work with the suffering that is uh, around the world um, and uh, also within ourselves. And so I'm going to give you more uh, sort of instructions and, and introduction in the, the meditation audio, um, but the basis of the practice is that we breathe in the suffering of others and we transmute or we alchemize that suffering into compassion or medicine or you know just presence really which we send on the outbreath in this meditation okay there's a couple things that i want to present and, and make very clear here though is that um first off when we are sending medicine to another person as I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, it is not the type of quote unquote medicine that is about removing uh, the, the pain or the suffering that that person is having. We are not fixing their suffering. We are just offering to them support that we hope will be beneficial in their process, right? The person, every person is profoundly intelligent. Their system knows how to heal. And I think, you know, when I think about real medicine, uh, not Western medicine, which I think is primarily focused on symptom management and, and selling shit, quite honestly, um, but real medicine, real medicine is what are the supportive um, perspectives, practices, energies, environmental effects, whatever it is that gives the individual what they need to engage in their own healing process, right? The the intelligence to go through in a healing process is in every organism. Every organism knows how to heal. Good medicine is um, maybe removing things from their system that is blocking the healing or feeding nourishment and support into their system so that they can go through the healing process that they know how to do. It's not stepping in and saying, oh, I know what you should do here. Let me manage this, right? I mean, I like, Western medicine is the ultimate colonialism in the sense that, you know, you're, you're putting a drug in someone's body and, and saying to the person, you know, your body's just wrong. It's doing something, uh, you know, distorted and, and it shouldn't be doing this. So we're going to fix it. Your body's kind of stupid and we know better. And, and here, look, we can just manipulate your brain chemistry and make it go this way, right? It's, it is, it's just like any other colonial settlement in the sense that, you know, this, this system comes in and says, oh, what is here does not matter and has no intelligence and we know better than it. And I think the sooner we walk away from that concept within healing and medicine, the better. But this can still happen, I think, within spiritual practice or spiritual healing, because it's it's indoctrinated into us, you know, that we expect that that's what medicine is. And we we have to claim back some personal responsibility in our healing, too, to recognize that it's not a passive process. It doesn't happen to you. You receive the support, hopefully, to go through healing, but you still, uh, your intelligence is what's actually driving the process. So that was a long-winded way of saying, when you're doing this practice, please don't think of yourself as... <laughs> 
like a, a sort of savior that's stepping in and going, oh, look, I'm taking away this person's pain and I'm making it better for them. Right. That that can engage our empathy tendency of like, look, I, I just want to make it better for them. Right. When I do Tonglen on the outbreath, what I'm sending is often a quality of spaciousness is how I engage with it. Right. It's um, or a quality of peace, a quality of presence that I envision and feel wrapping around that individual who's going through suffering or that group of individuals um, so as to just let them feel loved and supported, not to fix their problem for them. And concurrently, when I'm breathing in their suffering, I don't see it like it's, you know, I'm not a hoover, like sucking off the the pain out of their being and then they're free of it, right? It's more... Um, it's more the the experience of like, let me share in this. Let me feel some of this pain with you. You know, let me join in your suffering, breathe it into my body. And 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 also, I mean, the, the other part of Tonglen practice is we're not just aspiring to be uh, compassionate and present to the pain of another being. We're also training ourselves in moving towards suffering. Because as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, right, we cannot initiate if we're always trying to get away from pain and suffering. Pain and suffering is the initiation. It is our ability to meet that suffering and work with it consciously and let it transform us that creates the ultimate transformation, right? And But we have to basically, you know, transcend our biological drive to go away from pain and suffering and towards pleasure. And especially so in a civilization that is really um, co-opted and really enhanced that tendency in all of us, right? Where it's like, we're, we're all driving towards more and more and more pleasure and less and less and less pain, right? Which is, again, biologically understandable, spiritually, really, really bad and damaging long-term. We cannot initiate if we keep staying in those patterns. So Tonglen, when you're breathing in the suffering of another being, you are consciously saying, I am not afraid of that suffering. I'm not pretending in a or or claiming in an empathic way that I'm feeling exactly what that person's feeling you you don't really know what they're feeling you there is a quality of projection on what you assume they them to be feeling often when I do tonglen and I am sort of zone in on the suffering that the other person has it's just a heaviness or a blockage I, I don't really go into the details I suppose of what their suffering is I know that there's something heavy that is preventing them from feeling you know whole or or uh, happy and, and at peace in this lifetime at this particular moment and let me breathe it in right but the the sort of you know double benefit that you get from this is that yes you're joining in that person's suffering and because we live in a participatory universe and our consciousness is affecting things outside of us I really do think that we we do affect that person and we share in their suffering and maybe lessen their burden somehow and then offer them some nourishment and support but it also is so important for us as individuals to train ourselves in moving towards it right because the person or maybe I'll frame this in in terms of the steps of Tonglen there are five stages, five levels of Tonglen that we practice. In the first level, you are consciously thinking about uh, an individual or a group of individuals that you don't know, but that you know are suffering. 
And it's they, these are individuals that it's easy for you to feel a, a compassionate um, orientation towards. Okay, so this might be people in the Ukraine, you know, people all over the world who are um, in situations where they are are suffering, right? And and these can be quite honestly, you know, sort of vague or faceless entities in your mind, but you can just imagine them as a group. I find this very easy to do for animals who are suffering, right? Is is it's easy for me to feel compassion for. And so on the first level, you work with breathing in their suffering, sending them support, nourishment, peace, whatever you feel, you know, may support them in their healing process, right? The second level of Tonglen, we do this for people that we know and that it's easy for us to feel compassion for, okay, and who are suffering, okay? So this might be family members, people you love, um, people that it, your heart opens to automatically and that you know are having a hard time, okay? Now, the next level that we go to, and this is as far as we're going to go in the meditation practice, because the last two steps, and I'll explain why, but they're they're very intensive and you don't want to jump to them, okay? Um, the, th the third step in Tonglen is we imagine an individual or a group of individuals who we don't know, but we don't really like them, you know, or we don't feel like they are deserving of compassion. And so these may be perpetrators of violence on other people, you know, or people who are, I don't know, you want to do it for Putin, you can go right ahead or anyone else that you feel is, is you know, doing something awful in the world, you breathe in their suffering and send them compassion. And I think you can probably sense automatically that this is difficult. This is more difficult than doing this for someone who we care about or someone who, you know, is, is fairly faceless and that we just see as a victim, right? And Tonglen, you know, the compassion really is like... It's like exercising a muscle to train ourselves in this practice, right? And I always say to people, like, if you go to the gym and you decide, well, I want to have, you know, gigantic biceps, I'm going to go and do some bicep curls with some 100-pound weights, you're really going to hurt yourself. And the last two levels of Tonglen are equivalent to you walking into a gym without practice, without preparation and doing that, you're going to actually hurt yourself and in an energetic and spiritual sense. And it might make your heart close even further to try to force yourself to do the, the next levels of this. Okay. So on the audio meditation, I'm going to walk you up to stage three, which is probably where you might stay for a while. I, it took me five years to move through all of these levels. I think I was an inherently, um, how do I say this? was a jerk uh, in the sense that like I didn't think about compassion for people at all and I certainly didn't look at what a jerk I was um, and so it took me a really long time I don't think it has to take that long if you dedicate yourself to this as a practice but it is something to be careful with okay because in the last two levels of Tonglen um, level four is we think about a person or a group of people who we know and who we really dislike or who we judge and who but who we know is also suffering and again this is sort of predicated on this this belief that people are basically good and even when they're doing bad things it is actually an indication that they are suffering and they don't know how to navigate their own suffering and they're taking it out on the world around them basically but um so we breathe in their suffering and send them compassion right and and when you try to do this and you know maybe even think about doing this for someone that you um 
don't feel a lot of love for, right? Don't go all the way because, again, you can actually hurt yourself energetically. But um, you can feel your heart close. You can feel that sense of like, no, I don't want to do this. I don't like this person and they do not deserve my compassion. Fair enough. Don't start there. That's, you know, the 75 pound dumbbell that you definitely should not be lifting for the first time that you're exercising this muscle. Okay. The really heavyweight practice is the last um, level of Tonglen, which is where we are actually doing this for ourselves. And I know that this sounds maybe a bit strange because people often have said to me like, oh no, I can, I can do compassion and practice for myself. I could totally breathe in my own suffering and, and send it to myself. Um, I would, I would call a little bit of bullshit just in, in generously in the sense that, um, if you can do that, then you will have compassion for all beings everywhere already. And this, this whole episode is moot and you can wait for the next episode to come out and hopefully it'll be more meaningful for you. But when it comes to the parts of ourselves that we really do not know how to love or how to accept um, as, as a part of being human, we can't breathe in our own suffering, you know, in, in those areas because our ego mind, you know, our identity self has rejected those, those parts of us so completely that there's no way that we're letting it into our being, right? It, it will cause a I don't know, sort of system malfunction in our brains to even breathe in like, hey, okay, I'm going to breathe in my self-doubt, right? We do everything possible, you know, as Carl Jung said, like the uh, mankind will do the most absurd things to avoid their souls, right? And uh, we think of the soul as beautiful and wonderful and it is but it also contains all of these multitudes that it, of what it is to be a human being which is we're we're assholes sometimes and we're selfish and stupid and we we do dumb things and and we don't want to let that in right we want to pretend like no I don't have those things and so this is it is really the hardest level and it's something that I would encourage you not to go towards right away but work your way up um, through these levels do this practice as often as you can. I think I've shared on, on a previous podcast um, that when I was given this practice, I was, I think I was about 21. And I had just moved back for the second time from the Caribbean, from leaving that very bad relationship I was in for a couple years. And I was a complete and utter disaster and total wreck in my personal life, you know, just lost. And the therapist that I was working with gave me this as a practice and I just started doing it for everybody. Like I'd, I'd be on the bus and see people there and breathe in their pain and try to send them relief, whatever that, you know, might be or, or support. I would do it walking across the campus at UVic when I was at school. And it was, it was so pivotal in terms of, um, again, training my biological drive to avoid suffering, to actually move towards suffering. But it also just got my mind out of the constant obsession of myself that I was in, right? And again, like if we look at our civilization right now, you know, with the impacts of social media and the way that our interactions have been operating in the last decade and some, um, the, the narcissism is so damaging on so many levels because yes, it, it enhances, um, tribalism and, and, you know, othering and all the things that I mentioned before, but self 
um, how would I frame this? Self-obsessive thinking is depressive thinking. And this has been shown in, in brain scans, and I may have referenced this before, but you know, when you look at a brain scan of a highly depressed person, the whole central part of their brain, a series of, of sections of the brain that is grouped together as, as what's called the default mode network, which is the part of our brain that's thinking about me, thinking about who I am and whether the world likes me and whether I'm getting what I need and blah, 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 right? We need that part. It's it's important, you know, the ego part, we might call it, right? But if we are thinking about ourselves all the time, we actually end up becoming depressed. And look at our civilization right now. Look at the level of depression that's happening. It's because we're thinking about ourselves all the time. And we're actually encouraged to think about ourselves all the time. And uh, soon, you're going to be receiving an episode. I'm going to be doing a whole episode on your best friend on this path, the only friend the, that is with you all, 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 all the time, um, and your your best ally uh, as you traverse this this journey, and then a whole episode on your true enemy. And we only have one enemy on this path, and we're going to be exploring that at length, right? But modern civilization takes us away from our best friend and tries to pretend our best friend does not exist, and it dives us deep and and in just like encourages and enhances our relationship with our enemy. It's doing the exact opposite the, to what we actually want if we want to be connected to our soul self. So I think that Tonglen is a practice, you know, where you actually are thinking about other people, you know, think about the suffering of other people and not in that empathic way where it's like, oh my God, I know they're suffering and oh, I need to fix some something in their experience and I'm going to do it by hating someone else. Like, again, this is not, this is not good for us long-term um, or short-term. But in Tonglen practice, you know, really welcoming in the suffering of strangers and, and just recognize that everybody's suffering. You gradually, you know, and you may find that you can move up to level three. Often people can go right to level three, and that's why I'll include all three levels on the audio. Um, and But you'll feel maybe on the last level, you know, your, your heart closing just a little bit, and it's like, oh, I don't really want to do this, right? Stop. That's that's like your, your muscles saying, that's heavy enough. Let me work here for a little bit and stay with that meditative practice um, whenever possible. But this is, it's so important for, for everything. I know that's you know, kind of a stupid thing to say, but if you practice this, I can promise you that your relationship with the world and your relationship with yourself and your ability to meet and welcome in those parts of a, or yourself that you had rejected, right, and were taught to reject, everything will transform. And, and I, I really hope that you'll engage with this as often as possible, okay? You will learn, you know, your just innate capacity for alchemy, uh, for taking the suffering, the, what we call the bad, the, the shit we don't want, you know, and transmuting it, turning it into wisdom, turning it into understanding and, and medicine and, and healing, right? We all have this capacity to transform, to, to transform energy, to transmute energy. Um, and this, you know, the more you do it, you also will be building an immense sense of confidence in yourself. Okay. And lastly, as, as tying into Tonglen, as I mentioned before, this is also a blessing practice and, and blessing again, as a primary tool. Um, is very, very important through the shamanic lens, it's certainly within the Buddhist tradition as well, but maybe not emphasized as much, at least in the teachings that I've received. Okay, um, 
when we bless, you know, and and this is um, again shamanically, it it is the wish. It's it's the practice of wishing positive experiences upon another being. Okay, um, and in the shamanic tradition, everything we send to other people into the world, we will receive back seven times. And so if we are consumed with judgment and labeling, um, I don't think we should be surprised if we receive back something similar. And I think this is what's happening in the world. And instead of kind of breaking people's hearts open, when we receive this judgment back, it makes us even harder. And then we judge even harder and the polarization increases and on and on we go, right? Um, But when we wish positive for other people, right? Uh, Negative will happen. But when we wish positive for other people, um, we are, yes, like hoping that that person has beautiful life experiences and receives healing and everything else. But we're also maybe getting it for ourselves, right? So it's, you know, it's it's sort of tricky. Um, I don't think this is selfishness because uh, there's a saying in in Sanskrit, tatvam asi which I actually was going to get tattooed on my arm years ago when I came across it because I found it to be so beautiful. And it, it means thou art that. And I've shared on, on previous storytellings about how my teacher, when my older sister was having all of these successes in her life and she was, you know, doing so well and had all these things that I wanted in my life and I didn't have at the time, you know, and I was feeling all this envy and jealousy um, and I, I kind of, I didn't want her to do well, right? My teacher used the the metaphor of a tree to explain how to think about the relationships between human beings and that she's like, you are a branch on the same tree and wanting her to have less success or less positivity or, or medicine or whatever in her life is actually going to damage you, right? And I, I really do think this of our entire system, everything that exists on the planet, that when it is thriving, you are thriving. When it is suffering, you are suffering. And not just the groups that you choose to affiliate with, but all of us. We have to assume this position of tatvam asi, which is thou art that with everything. Everything. And I know that's a big ask, but it is, I, I think, very possible when we have these good, these proper tools to to work with, right? Where if we want the world to be doing well, then we practice Tonglen and we practice blessing and we practice sending to people what we hope they will experience, okay, or that we we want for them in their lives, okay. Um, it is, you know, there's so many different ways of doing blessing, uh, loving, loving kindness meditations, uh, many beautiful practices within different religious um, belief systems. This is my version of doing it. I sometimes will do it without the sort of breath process of breathing in the suffering and sending the the blessing on the out breath. I'll just send, you know, and or use my imagination to visualize that person having a beautiful experience or having a healing or whatever. Um, and so you can do that as well. But I, I guess I didn't want to complicate your process and practices too much. If we can put it into these two tools into one, that seems like a fairly effective thing. So, so. Yeah, this is this is what you're going to explore and hopefully explore at length and and bring into your daily experience. Um, I hope it feels powerful. I hope you can sense the power in it, um, the power of no longer rejecting parts of ourselves or parts of other people, no longer rejecting the world. 
right? I, again, you know, the, the patriarchal left hemispheric experience says the world should not be as it is here. I'm going to go perfect it and make it better. And I'm going to manage everything and, and tell everything that I'm smarter than it, basically. And I think that's a trap. And I think it's a, a very uh, dangerous way for human beings to be existing in this system. And it also as I think I mentioned last time, you know, prevents any magic, any possibility for um, mystery and and real power and medicine to come into our world. So these practices are difficult um, and they take time and definitely require us to engage with them in order to strengthen these capacities, but they change the way that we experience all of existence and ourselves and each other and I fingers crossed that, you know, we're going to we're going to go through this initiation as a group and come out into these ways of being. And I mean, we we be the way we want the world to be. Right. And we have to live that. And so I hope this has been a, a meaningful exploration that that encourages you to kind of de-emphasize empathic attunement and empathic awareness and move towards the people that are hard to love. And that is most importantly, you, you are the hardest person for you to love. And I know how sad that sounds, but it doesn't have to be that way. And you will learn to not do that. So, um, I just really appreciate you listening to this and thank you so much for being in, interested in these perspectives. I hope that I made sense today. I apologize. I think I was kind of all over the place, but that's what happens when you have two kids and too much shit to do so uh i love you all and um i'll be back here soon take care the knowing is an intelligent production and was recorded and produced on the traditional unceded territory of the northern sequipnik people Music, editing, and production by Brent Morton at Bell Tower Audio. May our hearts and minds remain open. May we meet this day with equanimity and compassion. And may we remember our belonging to this earth, to each other, and to all that is.